0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Hello, Dr. Adam Posen. Thank you uh, for doing this, this at very short notice. It's uh, been a while since we last met, but thank you any, any, anyway for doing this. And um, I was intrigued by this piece you wrote in Foreign Affairs on the end of globalization. And you talked about how the invasion and sanctions would not result in enormous financial changes to the global economy, but will speed up the corrosion of globalization already underway, a process that will have broad impacts. And you make the remark that with less economic interconnectivity, the world will see lower trend growth and less innovation. Could you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yes, thank you. And thank you, Mr. Gosh, and Thank you for The Straits Times for being interested in this. Um, And I know, as you just said, that the Straits Times has done a package looking at this. What I'm hoping I contributed is to talk a little bit more about the causes and the longer term economic implications. So as you said, I think there's been a lot of attention to the financial weaponization or weaponization of finance or weaponized interdependence. There are a lot of these terms running around because it seems so amazingly powerful that the US financial system, not just um, SWIFT, the payments communications, but the access to Western financial system is such a big club um, as in beating somebody with a club. Um, but I think that's been exaggerated because, in two senses. First, as we've seen, it's not leading to regime change in Russia or a de- cease and desist of what's going on. And second, because the success of it requires a very large alliance playing along. Um, um, Singapore, Switzerland, other countries that often, Japan, other countries that have often not participated in financial sanctions chose to, I think rightly, in this situation. Um, but there are still countries, obviously China and India, which are trying to tread carefully, support Russia, continue to get the benefits of Russian energy, but not Endanger the so called secondary sanctions in the West. So, to me, the the main points are first, that don't focus on the financial, focus on the real economy and focus on the alliance. But so, if we take that as the starting point, then to me, the big impacts are what I call the corrosion of globalization. And I know there's many terms out there, deglobalization, rollback, uh, slobalization. Again, I chose the term corrosion deliberately. um, And I think you and I have talked about this in the past. The idea is that there are many layers to globalization. It's not just about trade. It's not even just about economics. It's exchange of people, it's exchange of ideas, it's business networks and social networks, it's tourism, it's interactions with workers. And so it's a many layered fabric. Um, And when I say the corrosion, it's because it's been eating away at the fabric in different ways in different places. So some places there's a genuine hole all the way through. In some places, it's a little frayed. In some places, like with CPTPP, the fabric is actually extending. There is still globalization going on. The difference now is, in my view, because of the geopolitical turning point, which reinforces some trends that were underway from U.S.'s own political problems and U.S.-China conflict um we're 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 reaching a point where i think this isn't going to turn back it's going to accelerate and for the first time in my career people have been you know i've been at this now 30 35 years you know there's always a new bestseller about the world breaking into blocks um i think that's always been exaggerated (laughs) i think this time it's for real
0: okay (laughs) uh i actually um was wondering whether you would end end that uh, bit on a slightly more optimistic note, but I suppose it depends on what one believes in. Now it seems so. Um, you also wrote this: the world economy will split into blocks—one oriented around China and one around the U.S. with the EU as a sort of part of it, but not wholly in that camp. But each trying to insulate itself from the other. Um, so we were, we are actually in in a way. In a di- going back in the direction of the of of the original Cold War, right? When the, I mean, it, it won't be as stark because we are so incredibly economically integrated now, which is why Russia is hurting, in fact, from the sanctions because of globalization and integration, right? But we are moving uh, backwards in the direction of the actual Cold War, in a sense, isn't it?
1: Yes, and no. I mean, I think the Cold War had a very specific ideological and a very eminent, evident military aspect that I am hopeful is not going to be as evident a part of the coming years. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm not denying the reality for the people in Ukraine and immediately around there of Russian action. But I mean, in the sense that I remain hopeful and even possibly confident that for a while, China and the U.S., both I think have intent and capacity to avoid outright military conflict and forcing relations with other third countries into that box. I also think for all the talk about different models, this isn't quite the same ideological um, component of dividing the world that we saw between the Soviet Union and the US. I mean, there is plenty of disappointment and concerns about hypocrisy in the US part. There's plenty of issues with China. I think Ed Luce the other day in the Financial Times had a very nice column reminding the Americans and the Brits that the world doesn't necessarily agree with them to even if NATO does, you know. I, and so I don't mean to say that there's no ideology because there's no unity. But I think we're in sort of a post-ideological state. Uh-huh. Um, but on the other hand, in terms of the Cold War Act comparison, that is something I worry about. I think there will be very genuine government oversight about technology transfer, I think, and I fear that um, developing countries in particular will be forced to change sides if they want aid, if they want choose sides, excuse me, if they want aid or if they want access to markets, and that's going to be terrible for them and for businesses in those countries. And I fear that, as was the case for the Soviet Union and the U.S., I think for China and the U.S. and possibly others, um, there will be this Cold War um, capture by what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex that, the favored state companies whether they're literally state-owned enterprises in china or de facto national champions with military spending in the u.s will gain outsized influence on the economy
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you also wrote that economies that feel threatened by uh, the u.s by washington have an incentive may have an incentive to shift their reserves out of holdings in the u.s And in theory, this has always been a check on Washington's overuse of this financial power, right? Um, uh, So it might induce other states, you say, to come up with better alternatives to the dollar and to the payment system around it. And we've seen the beginning of that already. Talk about it. Sorry, go
1: ahead.
0: No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say you. Your conclusion was the dollar will endure, but uh, yeah, my conclusion
1: is the dollar will endure. And again, it's something I think I've said to you before. Not that I expect you to remember, but you know, currencies are always about a least ugly contest. It, it's 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 about who's, or the other way of putting it is, what's the alternative. So, if you were to talk to say the reserve managers at Safe State Administration of Foreign Exchange in China, let alone reserve managers at the GIC or or at at the Bank of Japan or elsewhere, um, they might well say, okay, I I, I want to have an alternative to the dollar. I I don't wanna be vulnerable to being caught this way. But what the Russian case demonstrates is diversification in financial terms doesn't buy you anything if you're not getting access to the system. Um, so, you know, the, the dollar was only, I think, 18% of Russian reserve, official reserves at the time of the invasion, um, at the time of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And plenty of yuan, plenty of gold, plenty of euros, and didn't do them much good. Um, the other point is the more we go down a military or at least national security conflict path, the more one has to feel that even if the U.S. on various grounds is ugly, China's getting uglier. Um, I, I think, I don't mean that in some tit-for-tat political scoring point, but I mean from an investor point of view. If, you're, if you don't want to be subject to the sanctions and the arbitrary wins of the U.S., I can fully understand that. But do you really want to be subject to the de san- facto sanctions and arbitrary wins of President Xi? I don't think so. And so the natural response is then to say, well, what about gold? What about cyber cryptocurrencies, things that are new, that are alternative assets? And I think that's going to be much more true for private investors than for international reserves.
0: Okay. So um, switching topics slightly, and you mentioned this in your article as well, you said to survive, societies around the world need to mitigate and adapt to climate change. So this has been a huge shock to the whole um, energy system. And as we know, Europe wants to wean itself out, out of Russia, dependence on Russian oil and gas and so on and so forth. And we do not know where this is going to go. Is this, um, it's it, it's full of, it's laden with ironies, right? Because if yeah. they had weaned themselves off fossil fuel in the first place, they wouldn't be in this situation. So now we we're not sure which, you know direction this is going to go you say it sends out contradictory forces that will make this transition more challenging and one of those things i'm looking at is uh, arms and weapons spending apart from the one-off impact of hopefully one-off impact of the war in ukraine and its impact on you know on greenhouse gases carbon co2 emissions the works there is in. We are going to look at much more militarization. If you Germany has now is now going to spend much more on weapons and the military and so forth, it it makes it makes me a bit cynical about climate change targets. Of uh, you know, well, what are, what's your opinion on that?
1: I don't know if cynicism is the right response any more than was already justified, um, but I do think some additional pessimism, Mr. Bush, is, is justified. Um, you know, former Secretary Kerry, who represents the U.S. and climate, others in the leadership in China have said, we, we hope that we can, can still continue to make progress on um, climate change and, and climate adaptation, and we can all hope for that. I mean, it just like during the late Cold War, there were agreements made that included both the Soviet Union and the US on some on CFCs, for example, on air safety, on nuclear security of versus accidents. So I mean, we can hope for that. But as a forecaster or as an investor, one has to say this, this doesn't look good for <laughs> um, G20 or for even bilateral China-US, let alone multilateral cooperation. So what one has to hope for, and you, you got at this, is that this one-time shock to energy where Europe in particular, with US and, and Japanese, frankly, encouragement and support, is looking to shift its composition and source of energy supply enormously in the next 12 months, becomes a springboard for climate action in the rich world. Um, and that would require Europe, frankly, standing up to the U S and saying, okay, we're making the move. How about you? And the U S case, it's not about moving away from Russian energy sources, obviously, but it is about putting a higher price on carbon, shifting the mix of supply. And, um, rather than saying, oh boy, I get to sell more, <laughs> fracked gas and oil, um, so, I think it's all to play for. A lot of the things you and I have spoken about, and that I tried to write about in my article, are things that are maybe not baked in the cake, but are sort of long term trends that are going to have a lot of momentum behind them. I think the developments in the energy sector are a very important exception to that, where things are generally un- genuinely uncertain and could be turned to something good, but we have to see.
0: I can't let you go without one um, uh, uh, slightly unrelated question, I suppose, but also related. Um, The U.S.'s Indo-Pacific policy, especially economic economic policy on the Indo-Pacific. Are you optimistic? Because uh, I get this this question constantly from people in Southeast Asia and Asia in general. Uh, We're waiting for some real heft to come to the U.S.'s Indo-Pacific policy on the economic front. Your colleagues
1: and friends and fans are absolutely right to ask that question. In Washington, we're also waiting for it, that there is this national security Indo-Pacific move, but that the economic parts of it are said that we need a framework, but nothing has been done. Um, I think we're seeing, however, with India's um, understandable but unfortunate decision to try to navigate between the anti-Putin alliance and the Russians um, on economic matters and on energy that creating uh, Indo-Pacific economic framework is going to be very hard if you mean Indo, just as RCEP and CPP, TPP, but particularly RCEP move forward without India. Um, so I am expecting that perhaps on digital trade and perhaps on certain kinds of security arrangements and standards for foreign direct investments for supply chains, there will be some fleshing out of the Indo-Pacific economic framework, but I, I think it's probably a dead end beyond that.
0: Okay, Dr. Dr. Adam Posen, thank you very much. That was great. Always good to speak to you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.